That was amazing. That was the most amazing theme song I think any show has ever had. Uh, right? brought, to, brought to you by Matt Hartley. He just came up with that. I don't know I'm if you know everybody. Stopping. The thing is, I think people watch this show. There's only been one other episode so far. And they think this has like a multi-million dollar budget per episode, clearly. <laughs> and, 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 and then Matt doesn't even, he just cranks it out. It's amazing. We don't have to license it. It's phenomenal. Thank you, Matt. Right. Thank you for your musical gift to mankind. So welcome everybody to Lunduke and whatnot with Matt. Uh, I want to thank everyone for hanging out with us for a very special second episode. And by very special, I mean technically our second episode, which means we kept doing it. So the first one, people liked enough to warrant doing a second one. So this is pretty fantastical. So uh, this one is kind of cool. Last episode, we talked about the Ubuntu tablet. We had uh, we had a very cool guy on. We talked about a lot of the technical side of things. This one, we're going to go away from just pure tech, and we're going to talk about tech journalism. And we have three really cool tech journalists on from three very different walks of life. Um, and it's just, just fantastic. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, over the next hour, we're going to talk about clickbait journalism um, and how a lot of people think I do clickbait journalism. <laughs> we're gonna... everybody, yeah, we get that from everybody. So I know. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about, you know, how people deal with the frustration that the mainstream media can't cover technology topics without making us all get pissed off and want to want to kill ourselves. Um, so it's pretty fantastic. But before we do the actual show, I want to reiterate, who is this? It's It's me. It's Jack Wallen, everybody. Fascinating. So, Jack, you just appeared out of literally nowhere while we're recording the intro for this. The show's over, man. You missed it. This here, this here, this this guy right here with the amazing green glasses is Jack Wallen. For for those of you watching this, Jack was originally scheduled to to be on this episode because a he's amazing and writes tech articles, and b he does cool zombie stuff all the time and writes amazing zombie books. Uh, but he's not on this show. Uh, but he gets to be in the intro, and that's amazing. Say hi to everyone, <laughs> Jack. Hi. Cool. I, um, I had a bit of an accident, and oh, uh, are you okay? Are you yeah, all right? I busted up my wrist pretty badly. Oh. And, oh. Yeah, uh, it was a booby trap my wife set for me. At the bottom of the stairs, and I wound up crashing into the cement floor of the uh, basement. Oh, I am terribly sorry, my friend. I am so sorry. So bummed bummed that I missed this. I was so excited. I had all this stuff to talk about, and we missed you. We the universe just didn't want me here. We terribly missed you, Uh, uh, Jack. Jack, I'm going to ask you to leave now, so we can finish the introduction (laughs) to the show. But but heal. But heal. But heal. And I'm so glad that you're alive. I apologize for interrupting your introduction. No, that's okay. Just take no, care it's of fine. you. I'm going to include this in the show, so it's <laughs> fine. Yeah, so you yeah. actually made it in. All good. Yeah, all right. All right, go away. Yeah, go away. Go away, Jack. Sorry. Go away. Sorry. I don't want you anymore. Go away. Go away. We're done with you. Take care, man. <laughs> Poor Jack. <laughs> He's just like, but I'm in pain. <laughs> I'm hurting. Come on, guys. Jeez. Oh, poor guy. That is actually that's one of the better excuses to not to be missing a show. I, I was bummed out he didn't make it, but now he got booby trapped. Well, and but if anyone who has a wife knows there are wife booby traps. They do. They do that. They get you, the man. They, yeah. they freaking get you. Before we go further, I would like to reiterate something about this show. This show has no ads, no ads at all. We are supported entirely by your love for whatever it is we do. So what we're right. going to do right now is exactly two seconds of promo for us. I'm going to put links up on the screen. Be ready to click if you're if you're on the desktop. And if you're on the mobile, just go Google us or something. All right. Yeah, All right. You ready? Click my link right there. Matt, where's your link? Right here. It's gone. We don't have any more. No more links. That's it. If you missed it, you missed it. You try again next time. Uh, I, I hope you enjoy clicking those links if you got to. All right. That's it. That's it. That's that's all the promotion that's in this show. Fantastic. Fan-freaking-tastic. Now, we do have one little problem. One tiny, Uh-oh. tiny little problem. Uh-oh. In order to get from this part of the show to the next part of the show, we need to do another theme song. Matt, do you have another oh, one in you? Or, or Do you got one? Here we go. Uh, hang on. Let me see. Uh, let's do... Uh... I'm ready. Coffee, 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 moo, coffee. Yeah. Matthew, dear Matthew, 
We oh, have yes. a very cool crew with us today, and it is for a really cool topic. So, as some of you may know, uh, Matt and I like to pretend that we're technology journalists from time to time. And in the course of pretending like we're technology journalists, we've had the occasion to meet actual technology journalists that work in the field, some of whom have even had some training on the topic. And that's pretty fancy that the training even exists at all, because I sure as hell haven't had any. Um, So I want to introduce our our crew here because we want to get right into it. To start with, we've got Ricky Ensley. Ricky Ensley has done a lot of things in this world. Ricky, say hi to the entire universe. Hello, universe. (laughs) (laughs) Well well put. Uh, Currently, she's a community manager, and she does all sorts of crazy stuff over at opensource.com. And we're also here with Stephen Von Nichols, who, if you've read Tech News, you've read a lot of articles from Stephen Von Nichols, because as far as I can tell, Stephen writes roughly 100 technology-based articles per day. Uh, And he currently does it as a contributing editor over at CBS and ZDNet, which is pretty amazing and he brought his dog what's your dog's name steven this is twiggy my editorial assistant and he's here to distract from my hair and the fact that i've got an awful shirt on for video (laughs) you know amazingly enough uh you're in twiggy's hair is not that different i i I rather like it (laughs) there's um our, our local gannett newspaper the Asheville citizen times had a contest once for you know people and dogs who look the most alike the winners and still champions. <laughs> good good awesome. job, my friend. And, of course, we're also joined by Whitson Gordon, the former editor over at Lifehacker. Editor-in-chief at Lifehacker? Yeah, I was editor-in-chief. At editor-in-chief. You can't leave off the in-chief because it's yeah. so pretentious. You have to take it. <laughs> um, also, he's currently the editor-in-chief over at How to Geek. All right. Gentlemen, I want to get started on a very high-level topic. So... It is 2016. We all write technology articles. We all publish technology articles. And then we take those technology articles and we send them over to social media and whatnot and try like hell to get people to click on them, right? Now, I think it's pretty easy to speak for all of us here to say that all of us have written articles that people have declared as clickbait without us wanting, actually having intended them to have been clickbait. Um, I, I know that happens for me from time to time. I think I'll write the most obvious article title in the world and I'll, I'll think, okay, this is just a matter of fact article title. And, and everyone's like, oh, that's just clickbait. I'm curious. Clearly, none of us like clickbait, right? Uh, Steven, Whitson, you guys pro clickbait or anti-clickbait? I would say anti, but I think it's important to define what clickbait actually means. What is clickbait? What's in what is clickbait? Well, I, I, I think that what, what it's supposed to mean is something that, uh, you know, a headline that makes you want to click, but then doesn't deliver on its promise. Right? Right. But I think that people have kind of turned it into, so, some people have kind of turned it into a, uh, I didn't like this article, therefore I'm calling it clickbait. Okay, 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 fair, fair. Uh, now, 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 Stephen, you probably yeah. write the most factual, straightforward articles of the bunch of people that are here. I mean, if I'm, if I'm being fair to all of us, I, I think that's probably true. Do you get people declaring your articles as clickbait? Uh, I mean, does that actually happen to you? Oh, sure, all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly, I base my stories on facts, but I also... On all but the driest, most technical t- topics, I also bring in a lot of opinion. So I get uh, the you know clickbait thrown at me a fair amount. And um, earlier, you know, one of us said that it's you don't deliver on the promise, and sometimes you do deliver on the promise. I mean, there's nothing wrong with um, a story about five niftiest gadgets if you actually have. Five truly nifty gadgets. <laughs> right. And yeah, that's that's a clickbait story. And the sure third not. gadget will surprise you. You can't forget to leave that little <laughs> ending exactly. bit you off. Have that twist, right? Yeah. yeah. You never know. I mean, that's one of the odd, also odd things about uh, we're you know the the bigger topic is traffic. We in technology journalism, all journalism. I mean, you need traffic to pay the bills, and uh, Sure, I could write about uh, MLPS networking. It's an important topic. 
isn't even going to read it. Is it though? Is it an important topic? No, I'm, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. If they're a network engineer, it matters. Yes. But, uh, but you never know. I've done stories that I thought were pure clickbait. People will love this story. Nobody reads it. Yeah. I've written yeah. stories that I thought were as dull as dishwater. You know, hundreds of thousands of readers later, I'm going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it happens a bit. It happens a bit. Uh, so, 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 Ricky, uh, we've got so you've got opensource.com over there, right? And opensource.com basically has contributors all over the place, just tons and tons of contributors. How often does right. that get thrown at you guys? I mean, because clearly opensource.com is a lot of, you know, anecdotes and personal stories uh, combined with some technical stories and whatnot. I mean, do you guys get trashed for for being a, a haven of clickbait? Does that happen to, to you over at opensource.com? Or do you get the, the beautiful coverage of declaring yourself as open source and then people will give you a little bit more benefit of the doubt? Well, I think we have the luxury of having a little bit more leeway because um, we are a site supported by a company and not um, ad supported. And um, we aren't generally writing any breaking news. It's rare that we write breaking news. Um, and so it's, you know, a lot of personal stories. It's how open source is being used in the world, you know, right. in communities so and it's... personal stories. And so um, we aren't writing clickbait headlines. We try to be very, we want to have telling sure that they really are summarizing what the article is about and what people will get or the general general sentiment of the article. So the clickbait thing's not the issue really with our site. Um, but we aren't, uh, you know, it's not quite the same as writing a straight up journalism either and right. breaking news stories. So, uh, is, so I guess... What I, what I keep seeing is I don't know how to combat this. So on the one hand, I get it. People are people are right. Clickbait sucks, right? I mean, n none of us want to go around and, and, you know, you know, see, oh, my God, these things are going to kill you. Number 17 will surprise you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, those piss me off. I, I hate them. I don't want to myself contribute to them. So how do we <laughs> how do we find a way to find that sweet spot? where we as tech journalists get people to click on our friggin' links and read our articles that we think are legitimately important without getting lumped in with all of the, the badness out there, with all of the bad clicky-baity things that are out there. How do we actually do that? I mean, so, so Whitson, I don't, I don't want to pick on you. I don't want to pick on you. No, but you were editor-in-chief over at Lifehacker. And yeah. Lifehacker has written a ton of great how-to articles. It's a good treasure trove of, like getting things done but it also wrote some of the most amazing clickbaity styled articles <laughs> in the history of mankind right so how do you how do you balance all that so you don't get the bad reputation and you don't contribute to the 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 horribleness of the clickbait world and just encourage more awful people to write articles like that um, while at the same time getting people to click your friggin article link i mean how do you how do you do that so um, one of the things that as editor I'm constantly telling my writers that I do is I, like, I will spend half, if I'm working on an article, I'll spend half the time writing the article and the other half of the time crafting the headline. Are you serious? And it's like not, are you, are you really kidding me? But, but that, you know, it takes that long to kind of craft that, okay, because you want you can make it exciting without it necessarily making it clickbait. You want people yeah. to click on it. You want if you have this great idea that you're really excited about, you want to get other people excited about it too. And you have to convey that through 70 characters in the headline. And and but you also have to figure out a way to do it that isn't number 17 will surprise you. It doesn't contain all these tropes that people are going to immediately call out as clickbait. Right. Um, and so you know, not only is it time spent on that particular headline, finding that perfect sweet spot, bouncing it off uh, other people in your at your publication, um, but it's also kind of learning over time. I know, like you said, I've definitely uh, uh, written a couple articles myself that afterwards. Yeah, you I was, have. You know, that was yeah. probably a clickbaitier than yeah. I Yeah, yeah, you have. <laughs> I I know you. You have. <laughs> but over time, cool. you kind of get a sense of. Um, your audience and the general internet audience at large and kind of, um, you know, you're always kind of learning and always trying to uh, drift closer toward that sweet spot so you can more closely hit it every time. So I, I and this is just a side note, I'm kind of curious about this. So I, I don't write my own 
headlines anymore. So I, I kind of stopped probably about two years back. And so like when I write for Network World, I'll send them an article and I'll send them maybe like, okay, here's my editor. Here's my article. Um, and my editors don't really edit my articles. They just mostly come up with the headlines. And I, I give them like a couple of ideas. And the ideas I usually pitch at them are just bonkers insane you know like they're they don't make any sense they're like weird inside jokes for me because i i just am terrible at writing headlines i don't think i've written my own headline in two or three years now for most of the major publications they just come up with them for me uh, steven do you write your own headlines do you do you get to write them or do does zdnet write them for you uh it's half and half i write my own headlines i'm not particularly great at it but, uh, you know, I try. Sometimes I have a winner. Sometimes I strike out. Uh, but uh, as for, you know, getting back to the original question, how do I get traffic? Uh, it's not headlines for me so much as it is uh, social network, social media. I mean, right. I pound social media like a drum for all my stories and for that matter, for the stories of, friends and co-workers and colleagues. Right. I mean, if all you do as a journalist is talk about your own story, uh, your own stuff, I mean, people tune out, they're not going to listen to you. But if you, uh, you know, you hit all the social media and you talk not just about your own story, but about this story or something that's interesting, um, yeah, people example, follow you because they want to get more news around the things that you write about. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So if you read my stuff, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn, whatever, I'm on everything. You'll see I, you know, a fair <laughs> number of Linux stories that I've got nothing to do with, a fair number of networking stories that uh, I don't have any hand in. But by just... Being out there and also putting in the equivalent of the comics and sports pages of traditional newspapers. So I will post funny things. I will write about my dog. <laughs> um, my friend Esther Schindler will always write about chocolate. <laughs> you know, it's an important it, topic. Yes, it yeah, is. I mean, it, it, it keeps people amused and interesting and coming back for more. You know, in some ways, though, thinking of clickbait, I think that's sort of an inside baseball issue. We care about it because we're painfully aware of it. Mm. Um, but again, we're in the industry. I suspect most readers don't really aren't really that aware of it. They're just aware that if someone is always promising something and never delivering, they're gone. They're not going to stick around. But uh, if you deliver on whatever that promise is, even if it's oh I don't know. Uh, Paris Hilton's five favorite websites or whatever. It shows you how off I am in gossip because she's not been news for a couple of years now. I wonder but, what her favorite websites uh, are. Yeah, right. Probably yeah, nice. this actually yeah. is a pretty good one. You would probably read that. Uh, I probably would. And if I did, and if I were to write that story and deliver on it, then you know, hooray! It's when it's clickbaity and you don't deliver that messes things up for everyone even if it's say you know the five best linux networking tips yes yes exactly. yes but i think I, that's fair i think that's a fair point i think that by not only having a title that is i, I think it's okay to have a clickbaity title as long as you as you said deliver in it but i also think it helps to expand on what you're saying i think it also helps if you actually within your first paragraph let them know exactly what they're about to deep dive into because then right. they can preface it and be like don't really care, I'm going to move on, or hey, this is really cool, I'll read it, maybe right. even share it. Yeah. Um, and also get engagement at the bottom of your article. As dumb as that is, man, it's not, It's like a light switch. If yeah. you, you ask for it blatantly, it really works. Well, mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. I don't think anyone likes to be tricked into reading an article. Right. Um, listicles are still very popular, and that's something they teach you, you know, first semester of journalism school, is that people love a list, and that's why you see them on the front of a magazine, print magazines, which still exist if you ever go and see them, um, you know, five reasons why you want to do or, um, but as a reader, I want to know what those five reasons are the second I open the article. I want to see those bolded or highlighted, I like, and I, I definitely want to know, um, you know, adding to your point, what the article's about within the first two or three sentences. Exactly. Otherwise, exactly. you know, there's a lot of other articles um, with somewhat similar headlines trying to grab your attention, so I just move on. 
Well, and I think it also it builds off of um, we used to be a time where we had brand loyalty to different publications, online things we would read, offline things we would read. I would subscribe to XYZ magazine because I was interested in that. Nowadays, I'm literally – my interest is so scattered that it's based on the topic – not even the author, but based on the topic that's being uh, aggregated into my inbox, into my feed reader, whatever that is. And I think that creates a whole new set of challenges that perhaps back in the day, and I'm sure Stephen remembers this, you could just build up a loyalty. I'm looking forward to uh, people you know, checking out what I'm writing to where now it seems like it's so much more competitive because it's based on whether or not that particular topic's really hitting home. Have you guys experienced that? Do you find that it's very much more kind of whack-a-mole? I think that it's both whack-a-mole... But at the same time, though, I think personal branding still works, which is one of the reasons why I'm so strong about social networking. Right. And encourage, endlessly encourage my fellow writers and journalists to personally brand, to get out there and put your – I mean, I don't care. I know a lot of writers are terribly uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I've seen But you really need to do it. And I think publication brands can work, but it's – a Again, I'm not so sure that the readers are aware of it, but I've noticed, for example, that in about two years ago, I started reading a lot of stuff about from the Atlantic. I wasn't seeking out the Atlantic. I wasn't going yeah. to their website. They just started doing a lot of good stories. Hmm. Um, you know, and um, so more recently, uh, the Washington Post under Bezos. I'm suddenly I haven't you know was in D.C., paid attention to it when I was there. Yeah. It really became really crappy, particularly on technology there for a while. Oh, yeah. But now <laughs> I'm reading post stories again. It's not that I'm looking for them. It's just that their quality has gone up. And as a journalist, I don't know, again, I don't know if readers are aware of it, but as a journalist I'm aware of, hey, I'm reading post stories again. They're doing <laughs> something right there. So and do you also think, oh, go ahead, Brian. No, no, no. Oh, so I, I'm just kind of curious. So, I mean, we, we've already talked a little bit about this. There seems to be, is there a disconnect between us and the people actually reading our articles out there? Because we're, we're talking about clickbait and like that's more of an issue for, for us. That's something we're thinking about. And maybe maybe readers aren't quite as focused on it so much. And it, are we on the tech journalism side in sort of some weird little field, like our own little mini reality distortion bubble where we live within our tech journalism world that, that no one else gets or cares about. Is that, is that why, like, like Steven said earlier, I've written articles. I think we've all written articles that we found just absolutely just profoundly fascinating and critical and important that just flopped is it that we're just removed from the average tech news reader that far i mean what 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 is that i think that's part of it but i think you know i mean this is just kind of uh, uh, me guessing based on what i've seen but i think another part of it could be that um you know now that we're writing on the internet and you know all of our sites or most sites have you know a comment section at the bottom where anyone can go and say what they want the people who tend to um, take the time to post stuff there are people who are maybe a little paying a little bit more attention mm. and are going to try and call you out on things like clickbait or what they consider um, unethical practices or things like that while maybe the majority of your readers are coming in from Facebook don't make a comment just read the article close it go back to their day right. the stuff the feedback that we're hearing um, is is like a different set of people who are taking the time out of their day and it's very it's very in front of our faces so I think that's a, a part of it too. But I think you are right that we're also probably it's hard to get out of our our own little community and our own little world of what we see, which is through the lens of a tech journalist. Well, I think um, you also have to talk about how you're measuring whether or not an article flops, um, because I think generally we measure that based on page views, right? right. Um, and Realistically, though, if you had an article that only two or three hundred people read, but it actually changed something, it changed the way a company did business or got someone to move to their first Linux or something, I would call that article a success. But how do you measure that? You're not going to know necessarily. It's rare that you get that kind of feedback. You know, you, you feel it in your bosom. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, you have to hope that it's out there, you know, and because right? I've had those articles too where I spent, you know, a couple of days writing them and they had hardly any page views. And then, you know, I've knocked something out when I was mad in 30 minutes and it's a huge hit. And right. I don't consider that a success okay. as much as the one I actually spent a lot of time on. To be fair, pretty much everything I've written that's a success, I knocked out in 30 minutes while I was mad. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty much is all of it. So, okay. All right. I, I want to pivot to, to, to one other thing and, and I'm, I'll, I'll open this up to any other topics you guys want to hit on. Um, but one thing I've heard a bit of, there's a criticism and it's a fair criticism and it's a criticism that is not just tech journalism, but you know, journalism, editorial reviews, everything is that um, within the open source world, the technology worlds, so many of the journalists have ties to technology companies. I write for Network World, but I also do some marketing work for Sousa. Ricky Ensley, you you write and write a lot, but you've got ties over to Red Hat. Uh, Wits and Gordon, you are just a fundamentally corrupt person down to your core. So, so um, you know, we're and it's we're not all like that. I mean, it, 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 from what I've seen. And in talking to people, I don't feel that it has a truly deeply negative impact. But again, am I in a tech journalism distortion field bubble where I just don't see that that impact? Is it is it an actual problem? I've heard this on some of the tech podcasts and whatnot, people complaining about it and saying, you know, there's there's too much involvement from the companies and in, in the journalist side of things that it's affecting not just reviews, but editorials and everything else in too profound of a way. Is that really is that really the case within our corner of the, the tech journalism world? Is that happening from your guys's perspective? Well, I think if I were writing articles um, reviewing and criticizing SUSE products, there would definitely be yes. um, a conflict of interest there. And you will see that I don't do that. You know, when I worked for a straight up publication, it was ad supported. I was not selling ads. I was not connected to ad sales, you know, Linux New Media. Right. Um, it was different. I could write about anything, you know. Um, and But now clearly, uh, I, you know, my, the company support, you know, Red Hat supports opensource.com. And so we're very mindful of that. Um, you know, when we're covering anything and including Red Hat, we don't do a lot of coverage of Red Hat on opensource.com either. Right. And, and for the same reason, like I don't cover Red Hat because I like I, I've wanted to go to Red Hat Summit a few times and I've just been like, I have to bow out of this. I don't want to I don't even if I don't have a, a perceived an actual bias one way or the other, because I I like I like Red Hat. And heck, even the president of Red Hat did a cameo in some of my videos. So, I mean, like I there's there's happiness all around because we're tech and open source and that's how it works. Um, but I don't want anyone to think that it's like that. And so I've avoided it like the plague, even when the topics are interesting. And that that's kind of a bummer to me like so uh steven you've kind of you're kind of the most independent seeming of the bunch in i don't know if that's a perception or a reality or whatnot but you know is this something that that weighs on your mind at all you know it's an issue i think about a lot uh i have very deliberately kept myself independent of the companies um because i've been involved with linux you know, pretty much, not since day one, but certainly week one uh, on Usenet way back when. And, uh, you know, along the way, you know, I, I was offered, just because I was out there and writing about it, I was offered uh, free, uh, you know, 100 shares IPO of Red Hat and SUSE and, uh, and Caldera. That didn't come to anything. <laughs> but... But uh, no, but I, I never accepted the offers, uh, and I have uh, I have no investments in any of the tech companies, which occasionally frustrates me because it's the one thing I can right? invest in, and might I would have a clue about, but I don't. And uh, at the same time, though, I do a little bit of work for companies. Uh, I. Most of my work, most of my money comes from straight publications. Uh, CBS and IDG right. are really where I make my money, and uh, bless them. On the other bless hand, I, I still, uh, yeah, I, I still do some work for companies. I, for example, I do a cloud blog for Computer Science Corporation, but there I tell them I will never write about a CSC product. I also won't write about your rivals. Instead, I write about just general cloud technology. 
and I think that I'm good. But, you know, this is not just a problem for us, though. I think because the readers who do care about this kind of stuff, the ones who are truly passionate, are very sensitive to that kind of bias. Right. And knows. I've been accused of it. I've, I think it's very funny. Occasionally I've been in an article where I've been, I have been accused of being a Microsoft, of a Microsoft <laughs> shell. I'm the most unlikely person I could think of this side of RMS. And, uh, but <laughs> there it's it true. is. It's true. And, I think I get accused of that roughly every day, which is the weirdest thing in the world to me. But yeah, I, I totally get it. it yeah. there, it's, it's like there's a... So is Just it, to find uh, one other quick thought on that, though. I mean, yeah. I mean, sure, we do that in technology, but then look at Fox and Friends or, <laughs> you know, Republicans without a job. <laughs> you know, you get fired, you're no longer in office, you get a job on Fox and Friends where you can be fair and balanced. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. And, uh, you know, going all the way back to uh, Joe Pult's Pulitzer and the Spanish-American War, mm. uh, you, I'll supply the headlines. I'm right. rather, I'll supply the war, you supply the headlines. I forget exactly how the quote goes. Something like that. But, yeah. yeah, but there's always been bias in journalism, and I think it's important. And I tell people this. Yes, I am biased. I, I am biased in favor of what works well and what's good. So that, for example, I... I support Linux and open source because it works really well. I'm not crazy about open core because it's it doesn't work as well. You're purposely limiting your product. I think if you go for an open course open core method. Again, maybe only people in open source circles know and care about that, mm -hmm. but I'm aware of it and I tell people these are my biases. How about you, Whitson? So I mean, you know, so Lifehacker and then How to Geek. I mean, obviously, your main advertisers are probably going to be a lot of the things that you're talking about and writing editorials on and it reviews is, about, right? What's really funny is that a lot of times the, they wouldn't start advertising until we reviewed them. Like, we would review some product, and then, and then they'd be like, oh, this got a lot of uh, attention on Lifehacker. We should advertise with them. And I'm like, well, now you just make me look like a shill. Thanks a lot. Because now their heads blasted all over the site after I wrote this piece. No, so, you know, it's, I think, I think you made a really good point when you brought it up, Brian, which is that. Um, Thank you. I love making really good points. That's just what I do. I do it all the time. I, I just like to wake up in the morning and make good points. Go ahead. It, it's, it's almost more about perception than anything. And I think, um, you know, you, you talk about how you work for Susan. I think that, um, you know, I, I know you and I, I believe that you could write uh, write about Susa the whole time thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this with any sort of huge bias. I right. can be an independent thinker. And it is amazing how, how little things can kind of creep into your subconscious. And I think that's why you have to be incredibly conservative with it, which is something that all of you have mentioned. Um, and you do it because whether you think you could do it objectively or not, it's all about what the readers see from the outside, and at the end of the day, you just have to be really, really conservative with it. And it sounds like everyone here has done a pretty good job with that. You know, I won't write about this company. I won't write about the competitors. That's all you can do. I think that definitely hits on it. I think another thing you can do as well is sometimes you just have to be like, look, I'm going to do the absolute best I can to be as non-biased as I can, but at the end of the day, I just like things that work and things that make me happy. And that may or may not match with what makes the reader happy. And it makes the readers happy. And that, that's just something sometimes you have to kind of balance out with. It stinks, but it's definitely a thing. Um, you well, know, I don't know if you guys have experienced that. I mean, it's, it, it is frustrating, though, because you, you try your best to just craft this thing. It's like, look, I absolutely do not like this desktop environment. It makes me want to punch walls. But I'm going to try really hard to get excited about these features you guys are all railing on about. I'm pretty so, okay. confident I've written an article with that exact headline before. I, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> confident of it. Like 40 words long, it just kind of like just, falls off. Just, right? just about, just about. Like I, yeah. You know, so as we're going through this, like, realistically from from my standpoint what what i end up doing is really less less journalism than like let's say steven steven i feel like is what he does is more journalism and what i do ends up being more uh fanboy op-ed right realistically i mean if if i'm being honest with myself um and that gives me a little bit of extra flexibility because if i go out there in the world everyone knows just brian brian's doing his little fanboy op-ed thing right <laughs> sure. so that that buys me a little bit of 
of flexibility, people still expect some form of journalistic integrity, <laughs> which is difficult. Um, but I, I feel like I, I have it a little bit easier because I kind of cheated in that regard. You know what I mean? Like I took without trying to denigrate myself too far, I took more of the Fox and Friends approach. I mean, I like, and not in the in the bad, evil, awful, man, I wish I had the camera on you, Stephen. That face was beautiful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I took the approach where, where I'm going to, yes, that's the one. <laughs> I, hope, I hope someone makes that into a thing. Um, where I just have an extreme opinion. So if Brian's feeling something, Brian writes about it. And and so that gives me that little extra leverage of I can just go out there in the world and, and spout off on whatever I want. And people will generally accept that it's my opinion. Um, yeah. Does anyone else have, have that concern? Do they ever get charged with saying that what they've written is not their opinion? Well, I think... Yeah. One thing that's really important to keep in mind, you guys are talking about bias. You know, there's there's a big difference between bias because I work for this company and thus might have some sort of subconscious desire to promote them, and and bias, like readers like to say, oh, you're biased towards Apple because you yeah. said that they have the best trackpad on the market. Well, no, I'm I'm a if I'm a technology reviewer, it's my job to share that opinion. Right. And just because I think that this company makes the best whatever, doesn't mean I'm biased towards that company. That means that's my, that's what you're reading the site for, is my opinion on these technology products. Mm-hmm. That's not bias. I mean, that's, that's a good point. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, he's actually, I mean, it's, I mean, not to split hairs, but he's actually right. I mean, that is correct, but, but they will say bias. They will make that. Pl- that right. There's a, there's a, there's a difference annoying. between sharing yeah. the opinion that you're supposed to yeah. share. Yeah. It's irritating, but yeah, it's totally a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Much like most of what I do, <laughs> yeah, most of most of what Matt does, irritating but totally a thing. Um, oh, okay, all right. When when you guys sit down and, and write an article, um, so like for instance, I, I try and make a point of of writing articles about topics that I that I find genuinely interesting, you know. And a lot of times for me, that ends up being a little bit conspiratorial because my mind just tends to to gravitate towards that stuff you know i just i just do it's who i am i'm fine with it but the reality is a lot of that stuff doesn't get a huge amount of traffic so most of the big articles that i get known for are the articles that like we were talking previously i have cared the least about and this has presented a real conundrum for me because when i think of what i want people thinking about about me i want thinking about about x y and z and now they're thinking about those articles about ubuntu and then a, a couple other you know big you know headline grabbing link clicking sort of articles that get a lot of traffic the options, as far as I can see them, are basically either only write about the the topics that I am truly, truly just crazy passionate about and be damned with the traffic um, and then possibly over time get paid a whole lot less money or, I, you know, be content with the fact that maybe the articles that I get most known for are the articles I just care about the least. Maybe not... It, not factual, they, what I think. I gave my actual opinion. I presented the actual news, but less what I want. And so, looking at it from the personal brand perspective, um, you know, like like Whitson, you wrote um, when when I think of Whitson Gordon's articles, um, a lot of a lot of the ones I think of when I think of you tend to be the large how to articles that you've written over the years, like the mm-hmm. like uh, how to get arch running on a baked potato living on a sandcastle, right? <laughs> like you'll write an article like that, and I find those that articles fascinating. And <laughs> yeah, that's that was my favorite. And you, <laughs> you go back to those. Are those the ones you actually want to be known for? Like, is that? And yeah, I don't mean actually. that. Yes. Okay. So that worked out for you then. This is, this is, yeah. This is. I don't think this is really a problem that I have. <laughs> okay. So this isn't this a problem. This is. Well. This is just. Is this? Am I literally alone in this problem? Like Steve and Ricky? Is this? Is this an issue so, at yeah, all for I, you guys? A funny story about that. Um, uh, I when I was a freelancer, I um, one of the sites I wrote for it was a, I think the only non-tech site I've written for was a Citibank sponsored site, and it was financial advice for women. And um, the editor wanted me to write an article on like tips for not uh, for you know saving money during your divorce, which I happened to have been going through at the time, you know. And so I, I 
you know, it took me no time to knock out this article and a few, you know, money-saving tips for why you're surviving your divorce. Um, and that ended up being the most popular article I've ever written. It got picked up by Huffington Post. You know, relatives who never knew what I did for a living were like, oh, my God, you're a writer. I'm so happy you're successful now, you know. And, <laughs> and my dad was like, that's so great, that article you wrote. And I was like, which one? Because I've written hundreds, you know, and, and um, or thousands. And, he, and he's like, that one that got picked up by the international publication. I was like, what are you talking about? Huffington what? Post. They didn't even pay me for that. You know, I mean, I didn't write for the Huffington Post. I didn't get paid for that. I got paid by a different company, you know, and so um, I, you know, that's interesting that, that you bring great. that up because when I think of Ricky, I always think about divorce articles. That's, that's right. the thing when I think of Ricky. <laughs> I'm happy that people read that, but that is not the thing I'm proud of. You know, I mean, exactly. I, I have a body of work in open source. I'm actually very proud of, and it was a good, decent little article that was easy to knock out, but it was not what I was hoping to be known for. But on the bright side, you know, relatives know what I do for a living now. So that's good. <laughs> One thing I've come across, uh, yeah. just, to, just kind Go of ahead. expanding on that, is I will tell people, oh, you know, I've been known to write for stuff uh, for a living. I, I hate telling people what I do because it just confuses them. But I, they'll be like, oh, oh uh, what magazine are you in or what newspaper are you in? No, I, I write online. Oh, and you can actually see the life drain out of their face because they just don't care. Like it's not a thing. Do you guys ever run into that where it's like if you're if you did something in print, it's awesome, but if you did something uh, online, they don't seem to have that same reaction. Do you guys ever run into that at all? Depends on how old they are. Okay. If, uh, yeah, you know, uh, say my generation and older, yeah. print still I think has a bit more cachet to it. Yes. Uh, yes but yes. Uh, if I'm talking to uh, someone in there, say their 40s or so on, it, right. it, it you know it's it's much less so. Um, still, some of them think, oh, that means you blog. I mean, blogging really isn't that much of a thing anymore. But it still is. It's sort of like, oh, you're just writing to you and the 12 other people who really care about arts exactly. on baked potatoes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, kind, that kind of thing. Know, yay them. Uh, right. And they take it less seriously. Uh, I mean, that's actually, my publication really is CBS slash ZDNet. Yeah. But if I'm just trying to explain to, actually I just went to a wedding this weekend. People asked who I write for. I said, I'm a business and technology journalist for CBS because they know what CBS is. Yeah, uh, exactly. ZDNet, they, they, or even CNET or tech, you know, our airs tech, any of those ones that we know backwards and forwards. Yes. They don't have a clue unless they're also a techie. You know, exactly. That's that's totally mind-boggling to me that people would not know what CNET or ZDNet is. Like that, yeah. that literally makes my brain kind of just want to ooze out of my ears. Like how how yeah. can people have computers and not know what these things are? I don't require that they read them every day, but how do you people not don't know? Even know how to work computers, Brian? Let's not like. Uh, <laughs> this is true. This is but, true. But, Stephen, you, I think I've had a very similar experience where it has everything to do with the age of the person I'm talking right. to. Um, you know, my aunts and uncles, I don't think, under, believed that I had a real job until I had an article in Macworld magazine. But the majority of people that I meet on a day-to-day -day basis are in their 20s and early 30s. And not only do they understand, like, just believe that it's a job, but they've read my stuff. In a lot of cases, when I say, "Oh, I, I was the editor of Life Hacker," fifty percent of the people I meet go, "Oh my gosh, I totally read Life Hacker." Mm -hmm. But then, yes, the the older you get, the more people are like, "I'm sorry, you you're a hacker." Um, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm and it's like, and it's, and then I'm just like, it's like a magazine, but on the internet, and then it's just the conversation's over. Yeah, that's totally uninteresting. Yeah, it, it is. It's amazing. Like, if I write an article that gets read by two hundred thousand people. No one in my family cares. It's really yeah. not interesting at all. I could put a video up on YouTube. It gets a million people watching it. No one gives a crap. <laughs> it's just not all interesting. And then I get a short, kind of good article in a publication that gets a circulation of around 15,000. And I post a picture on Facebook. <gasps> oh, good job. This is wonderful <laughs> for you. It's like, okay, guys, I got paid $200 for that one. Like, I, like this, is not, this is not a big deal. Right. Um, it, it, it is kind of amazing. Is that... Is it just a generational thing? Um, is it something that will slowly begin to die out as we lose our <laughs> older family members? Or, 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 I mean, or is this always going to be a little bit of thing? Like, like so I, 
we all we all write a lot and we all are kind of writers uh, aspiring and and actual in one way or the other and so i've written a couple of little little short ebooks and they do they've done fairly well electronically but no one in my family really cares no one really notices it it's just kind of something i do okay but then i make a little print version of it and you put a picture up and everyone's like wow it's printed and everyone freaks out and even people you know in the, in the 20s and 30s it's like wow it's in print that's amazing so is that something that's, that's going to continue being a thing i don't know that's, you know, I th- I think so. I think I think you nailed it because it's my younger brother who is in his thirties. Looks at me, he's like, "Oh, I didn't even know what you did for a living. I just thought you sat at home in your pajamas and typed stuff." I mean, you know, they have no idea. Which you you kind of do do that. That is pretty much what you do. <laughs> that is what I do. But you know, but it, to it, be it's fair, even all people. all five of us do not have pants on right now. I am confident <laughs> of this. <laughs> this is just how it works. All right, all right. To your point, though, most of my career was in print, and and wasn't hugely impressive to most of my friends and family. Just you Ah. know, they didn't they didn't really care um, or understand what Linux Pro Magazine was, or Ubuntu User, or Sysadmin Magazine, or Admin Magazine, and so it did not. um, That is a shame. That's interesting. So it's almost a recognition issue, perhaps. It's like, yeah, I haven't heard of it, so it's not a thing for me. Um, I'm not able to personally relate to right. it. Yeah, okay. But, you know, but sysadmins, Unix and Linux sysadmins, um, yeah. if they met me, were real excited because they loved right. the magazine. Exactly. You know, yeah. It was totally different. Exactly. Okay. Very I, cool. I think there's something that the reason I think that even younger people think print is a big deal is because anyone can write on the internet, but uh-huh. if, if something is in print, that means a company or a publisher has said, we think you're you're worth pu- putting this onto paper and putting out there. But you also, I think it's important to note that even people who are in their 20s and 30s grew up with books and magazines, um, and I think that people who are children now and who are growing up with iPads and Kindles maybe and you yeah. know, aren't reading as many physical books when they're a little bit older, that's, you know, we're still kind of in the middle of that transition in that's a way. True. Um, that is true. Yeah. I mean, so I think that the more that becomes central to people since birth, um, it, it may continue to shift in that direction. Interesting. Well, print come back around. Look at look at what's going on with vinyl, and even cassettes mm-hmm. are coming back. So yes, that's, there's, there's hope. <laughs> that's true. My vinyl collection is growing rather rapidly lately, um, but that's just because I live in Portland and I'm kind of a hipster. So um, it is what it is. So here we are. Okay, 2016. We've talked about a lot of random things. I want to ask you guys a question uh, because you guys kind of cover a really interesting broad spectrum of, of tech journalism between uh, between the three of you uh, that are on my scenes on my screen sandwich between myself and Matt. Um, if you are looking out at the whole of tech journalism, you know, whether it's open source or not, um, even though we're kind of open source leaning in this group, um, if you could point to a problem, if you could point to something that really chaps your hide at this point, right now in 2016, what is it? What's what's the hindrance? What's the annoyance? What's the thing that needs to be improved to make it more good for you, good for the readers, good for the industry, good for something over the next year? What is that? What is that thing? What's the thing that makes us better? Because we can't be at our peak, right? We're not at the pinnacle. This isn't the. We're not. We're not standing on top of the mountain, and this is as good as tech journalism could ever be, is it? I mean, there's there's got to be some way we get better, right? So what is it? I think we're actually sort of in an odd. Well, not an odd place. It's a natural place. Um, we're at a point where technology is becoming ubiquitous. You, I can't say the word. Shame on me. Ubiquitous. <laughs> so, uh, we, it's technology is becoming invisible to a lot of people. Now there are the makers. There are the people who read Lifehacker and so on. They care. They want to know about the fine details, and those people will always be out there. But I came up when Computer Shopper was this monster 1,000-page magazine. I remember that guy. I know because I contributed a whole lot of those 1,000 pages at times. And now, though, if you want to go out and buy a computer, I some people will go to the trouble of actually looking, but they certainly don't look around the way they used to. They just go to Best Buy or they go to Amazon and pop, they just order whatever's cheap and looks good to them. Um, they're barely aware of the difference. I mean, they're aware of the difference that there are Macs and there are PCs. Mm-hmm. 
and that's about as far as it goes. And yeah, and some of them are now no oh Chromebooks. They they're interesting and they're cheap. Um, right. Gate Chromebooks. Um, but so our audience, our broader audience, at this is sort of dwindling. But at the same time, though, if you read just mainstream publications, technology stories now are the mainstream news as well, which can be very irritating because. They're not well covered usually. No, um, no, it, they are not. It, it, I mean, and I, 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 you were talking about a specific problem for 2016, and that's always going to be a problem, and uh, and I think that will only become more so as time goes on. But if you want to talk about something specific that could be done better in technology journalism, and this is also true of online journalism in general. It's not something underneath our control, but it's the ads. Mm. The ads on our pages are ugly. There's a reason why, you know, when I ask about software that people care about, ad blockers, they care about a lot. And I have to say, I look at many of our pages on pretty much, not all yeah. sites, but too darn many. You're right. It's really hard just to separate the story from the advertising. All right, it's all right. Minimal. So if we're if we're speaking to our, our our people who are doing our web design and doing the uh, the ad buys and everything like that, what do we tell them to do? What's is there a fix? Well, I I think um, I was going to say something similar to what Stephen said. Is it boils down to money and how are you paying for content? And if the advertisers are paying for content, we saw this with print as it changed, you know, and you had qualified subscriptions, and so then you had more and more ads less and less editorial and that's kind of what we're starting to see now too online right and so you've got the clickbait articles that you're competing against um, and so you you know you're conflicted I, I need a lot of page views on this for me to eat and have a living you know but I also want to write a high quality article and so I don't have the answer for it you know but um, I I certainly um, uh, struggled with it while I was in print journalism for so yeah. long um, at Linux New Media. I think they're doing um, really great things with their magazine still, you know, Linux Pro, and they just bought Drupal Watchdog not long ago. But that no one's getting rich over there. You know, people don't want to pay for the content. Advertisers um, don't really want to pay for print because they want those clicks, you know, but then they, when you give the advertisers control over your site, you alienate your readers, you know, and so I would really like to see more companies do um, like Red Hat has done and support sites where you have um, single or uh, maybe groups of um, vendors supporting sites, um, you know, and uh, it's not um, ideal. It presents a different set of problems maybe, but then you can actually, you're not so worried about um, clicks, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, for us, right. page views me that we delivered content people want to read um, and it's not that we tricked them into opening stuff and I would like to see us be able to shift it back to that more in journalism what about what about like like subscription type content I mean I mean so like I mean clearly the magazines have a very high overhead and they have to charge a subscription but then they also have to have ads on top of that just to be able to manage to pay for the printing and distribution but for online for just a website, for say how to geek, um, you know, it, does it does it ever make sense to have a dare I say a Patreon model? But you know, like a like a a, a patron subscription supported okay. model. Do, is there people that enough people that would actually want that content in an ad free way, in an unbiased way, where they can be assured that there is no corporate meddling within the with those writers? Do do people care enough about that to to actually pay for that sort of thing like I think a few people have tried that and it hasn't worked out so well that's um, what I've I seen the problem is that the paradigm of the internet since the beginning has been look free content and if you start trying to charge people to subscribe they're just gonna go somewhere else because there's always gonna be someone who's giving it away for free people say they hate ads but they hate paying for stuff more I think the real interesting thing about because I agree with um, both Steven and Ricky but I think you know there are ways that it would be nice for it to go uh, we ourselves are trying to get away from display ads because we don't like them. But I think the way that it's going is actually in a can be a more problematic direction, which is affiliate links and stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, which I think are really useful. And and you know I know we use them a lot both at Lifehacker and How to Geek. I have no idea how lucrative they are because that's not something that I'm involved in because I'm editorial. I'm right. very happy with the way that that's been delineated, but. 
there are a lot of sites where if there's no kind of disclosure that we have affiliate links, this yeah. is how it's decided. Um, you know, there's nothing to stop a site from just saying these are uh, the five best laptops because these are the ones that give us the most affiliate pay if you click on them. Um, and and that's that's even that more sucks. problematic than having display ads on your site making you wonder what the uh, you know what kind of bias there might be. And so I think that's the direction a lot of tech journalism journalism is going to go. And I think that it that can be good, but it's also going to uh, present a lot of problems. Well, one thing I actually had some experience in that. One thing I found is that two, well, two things. One, the FTC is really active, and in, in, especially if you, as you yes. get bigger, they really enforce. And if you're doing stuff like Amazon or eBay, you know, they, especially Amazon, they will definitely enforce you pretty hard. I think as long as you're very transparent about it, it can be lucrative, especially with Amazon's cookie. It, it can be lucrative, but it's definitely you've got to be really upfront. These are my opinions. I care about these things. I, I actually have used them, or I care about them, or have some experience about them. Because if you screw up, you actually will damage your own trust with your readers, and that will actually let karma take its course at that point. Um, but I agree with you. I think that there's got to be some balance there, um, and and it is tricky. And sometimes some articles really should not have affiliate links. It's just not appropriate for that for that content because yeah. the intent's wrong, and it's just it's just it's just sleazy. Um, you really got to kind of feel that out. So it's kind of wishy washy, I think. So what you're saying is we shouldn't be sleazy. Don't be sleazy. Use your head. Common sense, Carmen. Would you want to do this? Would you do this to your parents? Would you feel comfortable in presenting this? Well, no way. Depending on people's question. relationships, that could be a strange question to ask. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is true. This all is right. True. I want to I want I want to kind of finish this off with one right. particular one last little topic that that really has been chapping my hide a bit. Uh -oh. So, non-tech journalism delving into the technology world, like like so we've already said, they tend to do a real crap job at it, and they've always done a bad job at it. Yes. Right now, if be it you know issues that come up relating to Tor or various leaking organizations or technologies around those sorts of things or hacks by Russia, um, <laughs> it causes us, the people that really know these topics, to cringe a ridiculous amount, so much so that my spine slowly begins to crumble up on itself and become a ball of titanium. And what... I find myself getting into conversations with some of the the editor editors and and online faces at some of the major news organizations because they continue to get things so profoundly wrong from a technology perspective and it just causes so much frustration. So my my question for you guys is and this is more of a hypothetical a how much does it drive you completely up the wall and b why is it that with all this stuff going on in the world right now, whether it's leaks and hacks and uh, encryption issues and how to break into an iPhone that they, someone finds in a place or, you know, all these different things. Why do these major media organizations not have sitting in those desks, at least as contributing consultants, people like Stephen Nichols or or people like Ricky Hensley <laughs> why why or or I guess I should say Whitson since there's three people there and I, I let cool. I, I'm like I'm just gonna say one or two examples and I realize there's three people on the thing and I kind of I kind of pulled a Gilligan's Island where you became you know the first season and you were just and the rest um, anyway um, why why do they not have these sorts of people just sitting on there to make sure that this is accurate information it, it, it almost seems like at this point it's just trying to drive us crazy because they're intentionally trying to piss off brian and i know that's not the case but it just feels it just drives you crazy why why do they not have some of the better spoken nerds out there there's a lot of good well-spoken nerds there's a lot of good writing technology journalists out there that written technology journalists that can get up in front of a camera and and look good and 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 say there's peace there's a whole bunch of them out there there's plenty to choose from and they could probably be gotten very cheap so why why on earth does CNN not have someone when they're covering WikiLeaks leaks or Snowden you know cell phone related issues why is that What's stopping them? Any clues? None of us know. <laughs> well, yeah. I, 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 two things that I've I worked for a couple of media personalities that were I, I, that have actually done mainstream media and as well as done a few things. And I can tell you that's uh, 
an agent is a big one, as dumb as that sounds, and also being able to pass a screen test. Um, but the big one is the agent. It's like discoverability. Are you in a place that those places are looking for? It's basically it's a networking thing. I believe. Right. Is that it? Is it just that I, we in the tech world just don't get how the rest of that world we works? With that. There's no. Is that it? We just don't. Part of it may be. Um, it's lazy journalism, and part of it's also budget related I suspect where they yeah. um, you know fact checkers and editors seem to be the first to go yeah. and let the rest sort itself out you know yeah yeah it, I agree with that for sure yeah. it does seem like that that happens that you have uh, these people on you, you see them on TV all the time uh, you know going back to 24 hour news channels these talking heads that honestly are just talking heads but they're on payroll instead of maybe I don't know an expert on the subject it does seem kind of odd I think I, there's sorry go ahead Stephen um, I think that Ricky's right in that a lot of it just has to do with money. There's always someone on payroll. They're in okay. Atlanta, New York, San Francisco. You can just or DC. You just wheel them out to the can, and they're there. Hand truck them out. Uh, another part of it is they don't realize them. The managers themselves don't realize how inaccurate some of this stuff is. They just want quick, dirty answers. They are afraid that they have someone who's technologically adept on there. They'll get too deep into the technology and they'll lose their audience. I mean, God help me if I were to bring up, uh, say I was talking about encryption, and I oh mentioned boy. RSA. I mean, right there, I've lost the audience. How many of the, what percentage of the audience understands that phrase? Uh, maybe point. Two, 0.2 that is true um, and family networking it's a, part, a large part of it um, shouldn't have said family because there is another thing that is you I, I like to say that I have a voice for a keyboard and a face <laughs> for radio uh, I, I do a I've done a fair amount of radio and audio work and yeah. a bit of television and you know I'm better off behind a keyboard. <laughs> I know it. And maybe happier too. Oh, now wait a minute. Yeah, I'm you're you're yeah. adorable, Stephen. Don't don't let anyone tell you otherwise. So, <laughs> That's why I bring the dog up. <laughs> He's much more telegenic than I am in person. Wait, what was that? Oh, you're more I charming in print. Girlfriend that told me I was more charming in print than in person. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. I heard that. So I see where Stephen's oh, coming no. from. I, I totally agree. I, f I feel much more comfortable in print. <laughs> Do you feel like you can express yourself more freely in print? Is that? I, I feel like I um, definitely yes. I need I need a few edits. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right. All right. All right. I know I said that was the last question. Here's really the very final last question, and we'll we'll end this so it doesn't get too crazy right. long. Do any of you guys do? So Ricky needs a couple of. Do you, do you really do like a couple of passes on an article when when you write one, or or do you just blast that sucker out and hit send regardless of what happens? I can't send text messages without doing copy edits. That's Are you why me? I don't like doing any of that. No, I, I literally. It takes me to, I can't do any of the tweet ups. We've had tweet ups here, and I had to bow out because I'm like, you're on question three, and I'm still editing my answer. Wow. How about you, Stephen? Do you do you do you sit down and like do a couple of passes on your work, or do you just pound it out and, and send that sucker off? I just pound it out, send that sucker out. You'd um, have to with yeah. how much you write. I don't know how you could do it any yeah. other way. Yeah, I mean, I'm closing in on ten thousand published articles, and I write very fast and a lot, and um, I'm very fortunate uh, that way. I, I don't claim. Uh, I don't claim any credit for that. I just happen to write really fast, and I research really quickly. And uh, while I may not be able to remember someone's name from minute to minute, I can certainly remember, you know, uh, what was happening with Yahoo back in 1994. Right. Something I'm writing about right now. You've been in this. You know, you know this well enough yeah. that you have the, most of the the knowledge needed at kind of yeah. at your fingertips. Exactly. Uh, like I, I, I literally, I never edit. Like one article out of out of a hundred, will I go back and relook at? And that shows. Like if you look at well, some of my articles, they could use an extra pass through. I and think some the of them. Difference also is um, I, my career started in print, and mm -hmm. once it's in print, it's in print. And mm -hmm. if you're mostly working online, 
you can go in and fix stuff, you know, if you notice a typo or whatever. But once it's in print, I didn't even want to read the magazines because there was nothing I could fix after that. It's so, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. So I, I took an approach. Uh, everyone know the band R.E.M.? Sure. So, okay. R.E.M.'s lead singer, Michael Stipe. Back in, was it the late 80s, they were releasing an album called Green. And on the back of that album, Michael Stipe was typing up the, the track list with the little numbers next to each of the track names. And he accidentally, instead of typing four, he hit R. So it goes in order one, two, three, R, five. And he looked at that and he's like, you know what? Mistakes are art too. Print it. <laughs> wow. That's and cool. I, I took that as license to I can just make whatever grammatical errors I want. It's okay. It's art. And that's that's the it's approach art. I've kind of taken. Yeah. As as soon as I hit that send button, the document's off. No, I, I will add that I do need editing though. Uh, <laughs> once upon a time <laughs> once upon a time I actually I had copy editor. I had like free editors between me and the public. Right. Uh, now, not so much, and it does show sometimes. Yeah, uh, actually, it shows a lot. I mean, there are there are consistent dumb things I do to this day, and uh, you're not so alone, I my friend. Friends and, and and coworkers look at my stuff, and but as far as me doing the editing, I can't edit myself worth a damn. So I just I don't yeah. even try anymore. What's the point? Uh, mm -hmm. How about you, Whitson? I, I, I absolutely go through everything at You're least right. a second time before I put it out. But that maybe of that's because I'm do. an editor and the vast majority of the work I do every day is doing that to other people. Yes. So I feel really bad if I don't do it to my own stuff. And there's always a typo that slips through the cracks here and there. But like, uh, if it's really short, I might just put it out. But if it's something that I took more than like 10 minutes to do... I, I will I'll do another pass. I'll send it to someone else on my staff, just like one of the no. layers. Can you read it? I absolutely will. You and do. Can you read this and make sure it's not That's like the cool. dumbest thing you've ever read? Because wow. I I know I can follow my logic, but I don't know if other people are going to follow my logic. See, you and me do something similar. Except what I do is I hit publish, tweet that link, <laughs> and then I ask Twitter, "Is this the Your dumbest thing you've ever read?" <laughs> yeah. And if they tell me it is, I go, "Well, all right. No one click that link anymore," and I just move on. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right everybody all of you are terribly 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 awesome uh for those of you watching this there's links and and names and things go check out all their stuff every single one of these people is actually writes decent stuff that isn't terribly clickbaity despite the hard time i give wits and gordon and we'll continue to give him a hard time until he dies because he wrote for life hacker even though <laughs> life hacker doesn't necessarily deserve that um so thank you guys thank all of you and uh yeah Go forth and have a rest of an awesome Monday and enjoy the whatever shenanigans happen with WikiLeaks and the Democratic National Convention over the rest of the coming days because I am. It's fascinating. <laughs>